I heard a really interesting statement, but it said the two most significant factors in who you will be are the people you spend time with and the books you read. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudoua, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, occasionally you say to me, Julie, I do not know what we're going to talk about on our podcast. We're certainly going to run out of content. I have said that. It's true. And you always say, no, we will never run out of content. It's true. So it's on your head. (laughs) Well, but then I love that one day after that conversation, you handed me your Andrew's Best Book of the Year list. And it goes all the way back to the year 2000. Yeah, you know, people have always kind of been curious Mm -hmm. to ask, and I've asked other people this too, what are you reading right now? Right. Or, you know, what what book has caught your attention these days? Mm -hmm. Because you want to join in the conversation. And, you know, I I like to hang out with people who are smarter than me, (laughs) as evidenced by this podcast room right now. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, that's a great question to ask people that you respect, their intellect, their spirituality, Mm -hmm. their uh, action in the world. What what books? Because I heard a really interesting statement, and and I think it's almost completely true. I'm I'm still pondering. But it said the two most significant factors in who you will be are the people you spend time with and the books you read. Mm. That those two things will enter directly into your mind and awareness more than other things. Sure. Uh, And, uh, you know, there's a tendency to consume popular media or social media or memes or, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's very easy to get distracted with reading the digestion equivalent of pablum these days. Pablum. Pablum, like baby food. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, And so... You know, I think right around the time when that all became very ubiquitous, mm-hmm. the social media, the constant, yep. constant, you know, everything through websites and advertisements and email blasts to say, I really have to be more focused about reading real books. It's so true. And when you said that, the people that you spend time with and the books that we read pity the people that are not well-read or don't even know what to read. So now we have a list of 21 books, which means, Andrew, we've got 21 episodes (laughs) all lined up. (laughs) Because some of them I haven't read for a while, so I'm not going to be able to say that much. But I would would say that, you know, occasionally I'll be talking to someone or doing a conference talk and something I will say I know came from a book that I read. Mm -hmm. And I like Mm -hmm. to give credit where credit is due. Right. As I have said, I'm not a creative or imaginative person, so I don't generally have original ideas. 
fact, I'm pretty sure I've never had an original. <laughs> I mean, every idea comes from somewhere. Sure. Right? So these would be the books that I have mentioned over time mm -hmm. in one context or another. Sure. Well, so what we're going to do then is get through maybe 10 or so books this episode, and then we'll pick up where we left off next episode. Yeah, I just going? want to warn all the listeners. Okay. This is not a recommendation mm -hmm. or strong suggestion that you should go buy all 21 of these books. Right. I know I have a very bad habit of buying books faster than I read them. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and I'm not alone in that. But mm -hmm. the problem is the books pile up and, and then pretty soon you're like, I'm, I can't read all these books. Where do I put them? Mm -hmm. And at my age, I really need to start thinking of getting rid of stuff, not mm -hmm. accumulating more stuff. So <laughs> I don't think anyone should, you know, assiduously immediately go to Amazon and order every book that we mention here because right. you know, that would be a mistake. But I will say right now, for your convenience, we will put links to these books in our show notes. So don't worry. You don't have to drop everything you're doing to take copious notes. We will put these links in the show notes so that you can... But we don't have any affiliate nope. relationships or anything. We, we would never make a cent off a recommendation of one of these books. Right. Okay. Just so it's clear. Yep. So not self-promotion. Right. So let's go back, back in time to Y2K. Oh, oh do you, where were you on January 1st, Y2K? Well, it, the more significant dramat, dramatical moment was the couple months before yes. Y2K because we had decided to relocate into the central coast of California mm -hmm. to be halfway between my wife's parents and my father and his wife so our, my children would have their grandparents nearby. And we moved into a house that wasn't really quite ready to be lived in, mm -hmm. while at the same time wondering, uh, do we need to store up some supplies and think about what happens if life as we know it ends for a while? Right, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it was a kind of crazy, 1999 was one of the craziest years I can remember. Mm -hmm. But yes, then nothing happened. Right. And life continued and it was time to pick up and move forward. And your book in the year 2000 was The Restoration of Christian Culture by John Sr. Yeah, so it was a book like many books that someone recommended to me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything about the book or the author or anything. Mm -hmm. And so I, I picked it up and it was right around this time when I was starting to develop my ideas on the nurturing competent communicators yep. and the importance of reading out loud. Right. So I was kind of convicted on that, you know, reading out loud to the family, very important from a linguistic development point of view. But what uh, Senior's book did is it, it kind of restored a, a knowledge that I had instinctively as a child that culture is transmitted through literature. Mm-hmm. But I gave up on. You know, I went to a public high school. I went. I took a literature course at San Francisco State University. The result of reading books in my teens, novels, was that I never wanted to read a novel again. Mm. You know, the mm -hmm. the teaching was just disconnected completely mm. from me, or I didn't have the life experience or insight. And, and some of the books were just flat out depressing, existentialist, tedious, horrible literature that I would not 
recommend for high school students,、mm-hmm. and yet it's part of the canon.、Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I finished up. I went to Japan. I worked. I was, and pretty much I only read nonfiction for,、mm-hmm. gosh, at least ten years.、Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and this is a this work of John Senior is a a work of nonfiction.、Uh, it as is,、well. yeah. But the most important thing that I got from the book is the importance of reading fiction, right? To restore the Christian imagination.、Mm-hmm. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that you know so, I'm paraphrasing here, but reason is the instrument of the intellect, but imagination is the organ of truth or、mm. the the instrument of truth, and that the truth of story seeps deeper into our souls、mm-hmm. than almost anything else. Sure. Well, we remember stories, and you know, as a kid, I I grew up reading mostly fairy tales and Tolkien.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't even know about Lewis. And、uh, when John Senior、uh, wrote that book, he was talking about, you know, already seeing kind of the death of Christian culture in our modern world,、mm-hmm. and how do we restore that?、Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, he wrote a, he wrote a first book called "The Death of Christian Culture." Too depressing. I don't recommend it. <laughs>、okay. But the restoration was really very powerful in just giving me the certainty that I needed、mm-hmm. and could benefit hugely from reading the great classic. Novels and short stories. Senior said a lot of things in that book. He said,、uh, you know, if you read Mother Goose, you will then be more able to appreciate Shakespeare. You read the thousand good books so that you can then read the hundred great books.、Mm-hmm. Uh, that that it's this process of building、uh, the、um, imagination and the connection, and that most of Our English literature, most of Western literature, for really from the beginning up until maybe eighty to a hundred years ago, was very Christian、mm-hmm. in its morality, in、mm-hmm. its cosmology, in its、uh, value systems, or what people might call worldview.、Mm-hmm. H- how do you know what's good and true and beautiful?、Mm-hmm. And so much of that comes through. The literature, so I have recommended that book to many people. Disclaimer, though,、um, he is very, very, very capital V Catholic,、mm-hmm. and anyone who is allergic to、mm-hmm. someone being very Catholic would probably have a hard time with parts of the book, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. especially maybe the last essay. It's a collection of essays, so you don't have to read the whole book.、Mm-hmm. the The best essay is the air conditioned Holocaust.、Mm. The last essay is essentially about how the rule of Saint Benedict and the monastic tradition、mm-hmm. civilized and Christianized all of barbarian Europe. Oh, okay. And、uh, you know, there's quite a lot about the the Catholic elements of that.、Mm-hmm. So,、uh, if you're curious about Catholic elements,、mm-hmm. then you could do it. But、uh, and of course, later when we moved to Oklahoma. There was this amazing connection that I never knew about、uh, between all sorts of people I know now who were students of John Senior、mm-hmm. in the seventies and early eighties、mm-hmm. at the University of Kansas, and、mm-hmm. that itself could be a whole podcast. But we better move on. <laughs> yes.、Yeah, so in two thousand one, and and I just want to let our listeners know, Andrew and I first connected in nineteen ninety nine. Was it? And so I remember having conversations with you, not specifically about the restoration of Christian culture or this next book that I'm about to bring up, but 
you were talking about these new talks that you were coming up with, and it was the families and teachers at Biola University where I was working that you tested out some of these mm-hmm. talks for the first time. Yeah. So that was that was really fun. So the next book that you have on your list in 2001, An Underground History of American Education by John Taylor Gatto. John Taylor Gatto. And I still reference that book mm-hmm. continuously. Um, I first encountered Gatto about a decade before, mm-hmm. uh, early 90s, and someone, again, gave me uh, his first little book called Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Education. And I read it, and I was so excited about it because I thought, ha-ha, this explains why I am such a stupid 30-year-old, <laughs> you know, that I went to school for a long time, and mm-hmm. I feel like I know almost nothing about everything. And and maybe it wasn't entirely my laziness or my fault. Maybe the system itself had yeah. something to do with that. Well, and statistics show, and just you know, just throwing this out there, statistics show that students, regardless of the educational pathway that they're on, will do better if their parents are involved. Which is why homeschooling does so well because the parents are forced to be involved. Because if they don't do it, no one will. Sure. But even the the parent that has their children enrolled in a public school program or a private school program, if they're involved in their children's education, it makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I had read Gatto's book and it kind of went off my screen. Then I started IAW in around '95, and then '98, '99. I was having a chance to go to some conferences, getting mm-hmm. a few invitations. And so I was invited to a a conference. It wasn't homeschooling. It was more like freedom and parenting, mm. you know, in this era mm-hmm. in Alberta, Canada. And uh, John Taylor Gatto was one of the speakers oh, there, right. nice. as I was. Mm-hmm. And so I met him, and I got to talk with him. We mm-hmm. actually sat in the bar and <laughs> had a drink and had a long conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had just finished the big kind of magnum opus of his life, right. an underground history. And so that was just kind of like the the whole history of the modern and progressive education, right. how it came in in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, promoted kind of by the social Darwinists and the modern psychologists. It was taken over by educationists and... Wilhelm Wundt from Germany, and then uh, that spawned John Dewey and the likes in the States. And it was financed by the big industrial money Mm -hmm. to kind of create a modern education system that would train people to do kind of jobs in a particular way and not ask too many questions. So it was Mm -hmm. very different than the more liberal education that pre-existed in the early 1800s and before. So he was in that book just kind of documenting all of that that, you know, was kind of on the edge of my consciousness, only using primary sources. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the the only problem with Gatto's book is it is kind of depressing. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with depressing books, but this one was kind of like, wow, this system is so deep, so entrenched, so mm. overwhelming and mm-hmm. apparently dysfunctional, even though there's good teachers everywhere, mm-hmm. like Gatto, who mm-hmm. taught eighth grade English in Brooklyn, New York for 16 years, was right. the New York City, New York State Teacher of the Year. Right. He knew he was operating inside this dysfunctional system. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's how he kind of got on. He gave a speech called, I Quit, I Think, <laughs> um, at he when he received his last Teacher of the Year award, mm. and then 
uh, these other writings came from that. And he kind of became, for you know, the fifteen years after that, the the patron saint, if you will, of alternative education mm. movement. So mm. mm-hmm. you see a lot of people grabbing Gatto and saying, aha, see, this is why what we're doing is better than mm-hmm. other stuff. Right. Now, these, this was a book that we used to carry in mm-hmm. our catalog. Yeah, I, I wanted to sell it to everybody. For yep. a while. But we stopped carrying it mostly because John Taylor Gatto made it available online. Free online. For free. Yeah. And, so, uh, and And we've also over the years tried to focus mm-hmm. on doing what we do well mm-hmm. and not get too, you know, I could find all sorts of stuff that's so good to sell pretty soon we'd have a, you know, 100-page catalog of mm-hmm. other people's stuff. Right, so right. <laughs> we, we've chosen the focused route, which I'm grateful for. Yeah. So speaking of books that we used to carry, in 2002, your book was A Thomas Jefferson Education by Oliver DeMille. Well, and that was the antidote to mm-hmm. the depression of Gatto. Because mm-hmm. Gatto, you, you get it and you say, okay, I see it all, but what do you do about it? Mm-hmm. You know, you try to be like John Taylor Gatto, but that's a pretty vague set mm-hmm. of philosophical guidelines. Mm-hmm. So Oliver DeMille uh, in A Thomas Jefferson Education, which is not about Thomas Jefferson. It's about the type of education that Thomas Jefferson and many other great leaders from history, yeah. all the way back to, say, Alexander the Great up through Augustine or Aquinas and Martin mm-hmm. Luther, the type of education they had. And so uh, that book was really restorative because he said, yeah, this this thing Gatto described has always existed. The ancient Egyptians tried it out. The Spartans got really good at it. The Prussians looked at the Spartans and said, ha-ha, if we could get kids out of the home and train them up to do a very specific job in a very specific way, we would become powerful and successful. And it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, the DeMille calls that the Soviet conveyor belt system. Mm-hmm. Soviet meaning non-optional, compulsory. Mm. And the conveyor belt is everybody kind of goes through the same program according to the same schedule, read the same things, do the same things in the same way to get the same result. Mm-hmm. But then he goes on to point out, well, there's other types of education. There's professional education. So uh, rather than textbooks for curriculum, you use case study. Rather than a conveyor belt, it's competition. Rather than learning, you know, what to think so you can do a job, you learn when to think so you can have a, a career, you can be professional. We've had that, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. You know, prior to the development of the modern university, we had very well-developed internship or what, what they called then apprenticeship mm-hmm. programs. And then he goes on and talks about the leadership education. And that was one of the first connections that I was able to make between really the classical or seemingly ancient feeling of education mm-hmm. and this idea that, oh, no, actually great leaders through all of history, even more recently, yep. had this type of liberal education. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, liberal is a word that gets bandied about and many people attach meanings to it. But the origin, of course, is freedom, mm-hmm. right? Liber. Liber, liberty, mm-hmm. liber book, so book, bark, freedom, that's all connected. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of was was really a one that without saying the word classical moved me further into the awareness of the value of the liberal arts 
and the great books as the education for leaders. Right. And then in 2003, The Flickering Mind. Oh, yes. By Todd Oppenheimer. If there's one book I wish someone would redo and update and put Mm. the current year on it, it would be that one. Because a lot of people think, oh, it's a book about technology, 2003. It's ancient. Mm -hmm. They must have used, you know, handheld spell checkers back then, which (laughs) I was using, by the way. Dictionaries, But uh, Oppenheimer was a Wall Street Journal reporter. He spent a year traveling the country researching and this was really the beginning of when there was this push to put technology in schools. They hadn't yet defined STEM. That was not an acronym mm. that was bandied about. But there was this push that if we don't get technology in schools at younger, younger grades, then somehow our students will get behind. Mm-hmm. And so he he questioned the premise and then explored the facts, and discovered after quite a bit of travel and visiting schools and looking at test scores and interviewing that there's actually an inverse correlation between the basic skills of reading, writing, and doing math Mm -hmm. and the level of technology in the schools. So the more the computers were pushed into schools, the lower the students scored on basic tests. He also discovered that in the zero-tech schools, like Montessori, Waldorf, right, where there's no computers anywhere, those students were scoring the highest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the kind of classical cushion schools he bumped into. But he, he found some really interesting schools to tell some very interesting stories about that. And I, I highly recommend the book because it was the harbinger of the mm. accelerated decline that we see sure. as the result of pushing more and more screens lower and lower in the grade levels. Right, right. And, and so, you know, he pointed out something that I have long brought to the attention of people, and that is technology will atrophy the skill which it replaces. Oh, right. I mean, I think today of GPS and getting places. Right. Could I get from A to Z without GPS? You could if you had a map, only you can't buy maps very no, easily anymore. No, yeah. But I don't think my couple youngest children would be able to use a map the mm-hmm. way I did when I was a teenager, using the Thomas Guide to get around Los Angeles. Exactly. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. But uh, so we, we see this inverse correlation and I think it's even more significant today. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the evidence is all there. The research is all out there. And yet someone somewhere has an agenda to drive more and more technology. Mm-hmm. The, the, the two things I remember best from the book was he explained this little exchange or an interview once with the founder of Sun Microsystems, which mm-hmm. is one of the early, mm-hmm. very successful PC manufacturer selling companies. Mm-hmm. And he went to a Waldorf school for 12 years. So he had zero technology in school, and then he went out to found one of the most successful tech companies of his Mm. day. Mm. People said, well, how did that happen? Right. Here was his answer. I love this so much. He said, when we were in fourth grade, we had to knit a pair of socks. If you can knit a pair of socks, you can do anything. Ah. (laughs) And then the conclusion of the book, Oppenheimer basically says, 
to look at it properly, technology will amplify whatever you have.、Mm. So if you have organized, productive, focused, and efficient people, and you give them technology, they can be more organized, more efficient, more productive. If you have disorganized, inefficient, unproductive people, and you give them technology, they become more inefficient, inefficient, and disorganized. And then he says, "So, what's your typical ten-year-old like?" Oh my goodness, yes. To leave the question with the reader, very、right. well written too. I mean,、right. you know, a fine journalist. So,、uh, I still recommend that book. But man, I wish he was around today to update it with、uh, yeah. a second edition and more current research. Yep. How about raising them right? Raising them right in two thousand four. That was your book from two thousand four. This is not when these were published. These were the book of the year. That That's when、read. I got、yeah. the book. Yeah, that by Theophan the Recluse. Yes, yes, Theophan the Recluse. So, you know, someone gave me this book、mm-hmm. again, and I looked at it, and my initial thought was, what would a guy named Theophan the Recluse know about raising children? Right, and so. You know, I I read it, and it's a short book, and I didn't really know anything about who this guy was.、Mm-hmm. But then I tried to find out. Evidently, he is revered in the Eastern Orthodox Church、mm-hmm. as a saint.、Mm-hmm. He was a hermit, I guess, who lived in the 1800s somewhere in some part of European zone. I don't know,、mm-hmm. but he wrote voluminously.、Hmm. On theology and these things, and so, you know, most Orthodox theologians would know Theophan.、Mm-hmm. But this was a collection of his writings pertaining to children and education. And the thing that really struck me was his statement that the whole end purpose, the meaning, the 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 goal, the end of education, is. The cultivation of appetites,、mm-hmm. and you know, as a parent, you're you're thinking a lot about okay, academics, and getting ready for college and all that. But from his spiritual perspective, of course, before there were SAT tests and stuff to worry about, you know, he was arguing that it's really what you leave childhood with is your set of desires, your appetites. What do you want? Mm-hmm. In life, and that that is the most significant thing that will affect the rest of your life. Sure, and it's a pretty compelling argument. So, if we raise children who have an appetite for security and comfort and luxury,、mm-hmm. then that's what they will make all their decisions based on.、Mm-hmm. So then he goes on, you know, because it's Christian theology to point out that the appetites of a Christian should be to follow Christ. Right. Well, okay. I mean. That's kind of a no-brainer,、mm-hmm. but then he, of course, explains that to follow Christ means living a life of surrender, service, and surrender, and suffering and sacrifice, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's hard because it comes like right in your face. Yes, I'm not really into that stuff myself. <laughs> I wouldn't put that on my high list of desires、mm-hmm. or appetites for、mm-hmm. suffering.、Mm-hmm. And so it was hard. You know, I thought, okay, service, I can do that,、mm-hmm. especially if I get paid. <laughs> you know, surrender. Well, you know, that's why you get married. You learn <laughs> a little bit about that.、Mm-hmm. But this, you know, sacrifice business—that doesn't really strike me as a goal. And suffering is way low on my list of objectives. And I thought, wow, that's very interesting. And it was a big shift, I think, in 
kind of, you know, my whole philosophy of parenting. Right. Probably more than teaching per se. Mm. But how do you create an appetite for something you would like your children to mm. have that you don't particularly possess yourself? Right, exactly. And so that that led to a lot of decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the reasons I thought let's move to a rural agrarian area in the middle of nowhere in eastern Oklahoma is so that my young children could suffer more. <laughs> right. But you, you know. didn't do that for a few, for a few years. Yeah, no, that. it took a while. But yeah. I started thinking about it back then. Right, it, right. Yeah. So 2005, we probably only have time to hit these next three pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Okay, so 2005, you have Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre. Richard Louvre, yeah. So uh, there's such a big story behind all of these books. We, yes. we may have to stretch this into three episodes. Okay. I don't know. So I had... I had become very philosophical around that time. I, my first grandchildren were starting to appear. Mm-hmm. I was looking at my life as being about half over or worse. Mm-hmm. And I just was, I was flooded with gratitude mm. for everything. And, and part of it was for my childhood. Yes. And there were elements of my childhood that I think brought me to a level of, you know, faith and and happiness in later life, mm-hmm. um, and I identified the two: one, fairy tales, and the other, a lot of time in nature. And, and so, your nef- your nature deficit disorder talk yes, came from. I stole the book. title straight from that book. So Richard Lewis book, Nature Deficit Disorder. Is that the same book, Last yes. Child in the Woods? Uh-huh. Oh, okay, great. Yep, it's the subtitle. Yeah, got yeah. it. But, you know, I just thought that is something I did not suffer, but I see a lot of children today. Right. So I read the book. I was um, really impressed mm-hmm. with his very secular argument. I mean, it was no no religious or mm-hmm. agenda in it. It was basically just saying, here are the personal, familial, and social consequences of people being alienated from nature. Right. And, uh, of course, things have, in many ways for many people, gotten worse Yeah. Uh, since he wrote that book. But his work, you can look it up. It's L-O-U-V. Mm-hmm. There's no E or anything on the end. L-O-U-V. And he started a foundation to try and educate people. There's a another uh, woman who started a blog um, – a thousand days outside, or something mm, like that. Nice. Yep. We'll, we'll have to look it up and mm-hmm. find it. But this kind of renewed understanding that technology will lock people inside, onto screens, near plugs, and we have to make a much harder effort today. Yes. To get children outside mm-hmm. in a natural environment, having a chance to swim and hike and mm-hmm. ride bikes and mm-hmm. have that freedom. And then he outlines all the reasons in addition to technology, the, mm-hmm. you know, st- fear of strangers and dangers, yeah. legal issues that prevent kids from, you know, mm-hmm. building a tree house in their yard right. because it violates zoning, all, all sorts of stuff. So uh, it's highly recommended. And that talk, Nature Deficit Disorder, I wouldn't put it on my most common conference talks list, mm-hmm. but every time I do that talk, several people will come up and say, I so needed to hear that yeah. right now. 
And we'll definitely put that link in the show notes. Do we have time just to hit on these other two pretty quickly? 2006 Poetic Knowledge by James Taylor and Boys Adrift by Leonard Sachs. Well, Poetic Knowledge, I can't really say much about, except it's possibly the hardest book I ever tried to read in my life. I think it was even harder than Plato. You know, they say reading Plato is actually easier than reading people writing about Plato. Mm. Poetic Knowledge, subtitle is The Recovery of Education, and it was James Taylor, Mm -hmm. not the singer, another man, James Taylor. It was his doctoral dissertation in philosophy. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it presumed a tremendous background that I did not have. Mm -hmm. But his basic argument is that the order of knowing has been inverted to some degree so that once upon a time there was this understanding, almost universal understanding that you could know things by rhyme or reason. Rhyme being poetic. It was beautiful. If it was beautiful, it it was true. It, It didn't need to be verified or supported. You could just know for a fact that is a good thing or this is that. Uh, And then if you couldn't, then you would go to reason. So you would try to understand the truth of things using dialectic, logic, uh, forensics, kind of the the argumentation and the the type of thing that happens in courtrooms. And then if you couldn't do that, then you'd look to scientific and you'd go and say, can this be measured and proved materially? And so his point was that we've inverted this that now we look at scientific knowledge as being the only valid source of knowing anything true. We allow logic only to the degree that our science supports it, Mm -hmm. and we don't really trust anything just because it is poetic. Uh, But his argument is the the highest and most important truths Mm -hmm. are contained in the stories. And that that idea made its way into my talk on fairy tales and the moral imagination. Right. And then I think, you know, even more recently, we see uh, this desperate desire to use science to prove everything. Uh, and of course, what we discover is that science itself can't even prove itself. And there are things that are both very scientific that may be in significant disagreement. Yeah. And that just frustrates everyone right now, yeah. I think. Well, listener, we're going to stop here. I'm going to put my finger right there. We're going to come back next week and talk about Boys Adrift. 2007 was a good year for me, Andrew. It's when I joined your yes. team. Yes. So we'll pick up there. And uh, is that okay? Sure. Right. Yeah, this is fun. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.